Leadership is the art of persuasion, the act of motivating people to do more than they ever thought possible in pursuit of a greater good. Managers spend most of their time managing things. Leaders lead people. A true leader influences others to be their best. Leadership is about social influence, not positional power. That's Travis Bradbury, PhD, author of Emotional Intelligence 2.0, in the introduction of Great Leaders Have No Rules. Welcome to the Instinctive Influencers Podcast, a show where influence becomes one of your tools for success. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Ed Haley. Hi, I'm Brian. And I am Ed. And this is the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Ed, it's finally here. We're going to go over the book we've been talking about. Yes, I'm I'm excited to uh <clears throat> I'm excited to discuss this book and it was really by accident. Not accident, it was my curiosity for podcast that led me to this book. Um and actually so on our last episode we talked about uh article from the Green Notebook. Well, if you go to from the Green Notebook, it has different resources and in those resources it has leadership podcasts and in those leadership podcasts it had the Lead X podcast. And I listened to the Lead X podcast and I was impressed. And then I saw that there was a book episode coming up and I listened to him talk about his coming uh, book coming out. And this is the mm-hmm. book. This yes, is the book. It is. Great Leaders Have No Rules by Kevin Cruz. Man, I'll tell you, I, I, I can't I can't uh, stress enough how good this book is. Uh, I've listened to it. I don't know how many times I've gone over it in my Kindle app multiple times just kind of like highlighting things here and there but i mean it's it's definitely one of those ones ed that if i had a hard copy in front of me it probably would be all marked up easily and mine is i had the hard copy in the audiobook um and i also listen so i listen to him talk about kind of some of the process of it and like so the, the title alone he was not uh, that title came from uh the publisher the publishers came up with that title. He was not a fan because he thought it would turn people off. So he had that subtitle put in. Uh, so it's actually great leaders have no rules. Contrarian leadership principles to transform your team and business. He added that because he felt like that got more of the message. And he also got them to bold the great leaders part because that's an attention grabber, right? When you see it on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is advertising. I mean, with my newest master's program that I'm a part of, it's about, it's really about marketing online and stuff. And I can tell you that I've noticed more and more books that have the same visual look to it. And those, those seems to be the books that tend to, uh, that tend to bring in more money. You know what I'm saying? This great leaders have no rules. It looks a lot like good to great. Another good book by Jim Collins. There's a lot of good information in this particular book, but before we like, we dive into the book. You obviously have some background on him a little bit. You, know, you were able to tell us a little bit about the title. Can you tell us a little bit more about Kevin Cruz himself? Well, so Kevin Cruz, he he started his own company when he was just 22. That was his first thing he did, right? And then he put in all this work, and um, he ended up that, – that company ended up failing, and he quit a year after that because of debt. But then he started researching and he discovered the power of what he calls wholehearted leadership and extreme productivity. 
it was at this point that he kind of turned that corner and he went on, he built several uh, multi-million dollar uh, technology companies, which he sold along the way and, and bought new ones. He won uh, the Inc 500 and best place to work award along the way. He's also authored several New York Times bestselling books, which I, I will be honest, I haven't read them all yet. One of them is uh, How to Increase Performance and Profit Through Full Engagement, uh, Employee Engagement 2.0, 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management, which I think is a big one for me as a professional procrastinator. I think I need to look at that one. <laughs> uh, he's also a Forbes leadership columnist, and he was named to the Trust Across America Top Thought Leader in Trust. So he's done a lot of writing, a lot of research, and then a lot of what he believes in his thoughts are based on surveys. So in this book, uh, you notice there's a lot of scientific stuff in here, just like when we did the science like ability. Um, these surveys from his website, it says uh, 10 million people in 150 countries participated in these surveys where he learns about growth, recognition and trust as being key drivers. And one of my favorite things that he says is, so he has two things that he knows about leadership that most people do not believe. The first one, and this is my favorite one, leadership is a superpower. Oh, yeah. So so we have superpowers, Brian. I like that part. And then the second one is uh, almost everything we've been taught about leadership is wrong. And that is where this book comes into uh, in the play a little bit. And like I said, he backs up like when he, he has his chapter and he backs it up with science throughout. So also you could check out the lead X website and they do some free leadership development for people. And, and they give you some tools as complimentary tools to this book are out there that, uh, that I sent to you and, and they're good tools with good thought driving questions. And uh, I'm excited to get started. I can definitely say that, the podcast itself that he does, the LeadX podcast, I've skipped around, you know, listening to different ones because I, maybe I was interested in one thing and then I want to learn a bit more. But, you know, when you look for the titles, you normally see what it's about. And I can say that it is it keeps your attention. Uh, he has really good guests on there and the topics are definitely engaging. I can definitely say yes. that also. So Yes, I think there's one. It's like I can't remember the exact title, but it's like two blokes talking about leadership. I, I, that one was pretty good. There's a servant leadership one that I would recommend as well. That was really good. Oh yeah, definitely. Yep. All right. So we'll, we're going to get right into this uh, because there are 10 chapters and we're going to try and get all 10 chapters in and we're going to do our best to do it in a certain amount of time. If we can do it, we're going to see, we'll see what we can do. Okay. Right, so here are the name of the 10 chapters. So everyone has an idea of what we're going to be talking about for, so one, Close your open door policy. Two, turn off your smartphone. Three, have no rules. Four, be likable, not liked. Five, lead with love. Six, crowd your calendar. Seven, play favorites. Eight, reveal everything. Nine, show weakness. And ten, leadership is not a choice. I know those those different titles. They, they, uh, they, those are some questions. There's some questions involved with these, and I, I can tell you right now, listeners, those of you out there, we're definitely going to get in depth on a lot of this stuff. And it's, I will also say, go ahead and purchase this book. We, don't, I mean, we don't get a kickback for from Kevin Cruz. It's just, it's that good of a book. I would definitely say, check it out. 
you not you don't have to li- uh, to read or listen to just all of the chapters. You can do one at a time if you want. They, they don't, you know, you could skip around even if you wanted to to really understand this stuff. Yeah, I think when so when you read the rules, when you read these uh, chapters, I mean, Brian, immediately your mind is like, wait a minute, I was always taught to have an open door policy. I was, uh, you know, always taught, you know, uh, you know, this lead with love stuff. That's too hands on for me and, and play favorites. That's the opposite of what I taught. And that's the principle of this whole book is he's going to explain to you why these things were wrong. I, I said it earlier. Hey, almost everything we've been taught about leadership is wrong. So let's uh, see if we can get down to it. I'm definitely, I, I can tell you there's some of these here that I'm going to reveal some stuff that was said to me. I'm not going to say who said these things, but they were from senior leaders that I've had. And it literally goes against what, like what they said um, of what he's saying here. And I'm like, oh, wow, so crazy. So anyways, <laughs> let's get right into it. Let's straight into chapter one. Now, Ed and I are going to bounce back and forth uh, a lot during this. Uh, obviously, we're, each one of us have – I have all the odd chapters. It has all the even chapters. But even though, we still are going to discuss things so here and there. Right off the bat, number one, close your open-door policy. Uh, this, to me, this was uh, this is kind of one of those things where it does go against what we've been taught in the Army because every commander, every first sergeant uh, – I mean – Every any leader is supposed to have an open door policy, and that's understandable. But the way he frames this, it makes total sense. All right, so think about this. I want to read. I'm going to read a little bit uh, here in his book. It's it's called Got a Minute, and this is the part that mm. this is where I was most affected by the close your open door policy. So I'm going to read it real quick, and then we'll discuss it. All right, so Got a Minute. While I may not be a talk show host, I can definitely relate to the problem of unscheduled pop-ins, the three-word question that used to send chills down my spine. Got a minute? I'm working on next year's strategic plan and budget. How will my company go from $5 million in annual sales to $10 million in a single year? That's the goal set by my strategic partner who will fund the growth, and it's up to me to show how we're going to do it. Let's see, if I add two more sales reps in column X at $90,000 a piece, and they each increase sales starting in month six by, not, 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 got a minute? I want to be supportive of my team members. I want to be a good leader. So, sure, Tracy, what's up? She steps in and displays a 3D picture of a conference exposition booth. I'm getting ready to approve the final booth design. They made the changes we asked for last week. Does it look okay to you? I told you last week it looked good to me with the changes. I know, but this is the final, final design. Before I go spend $10,000, I thought I should check. Tracy, you got this. Budget is fine. Design is fine. Okay, thanks. Okay, where was I? Impact of hiring more sales reps. What column was the number of sales reps? There, column X. If I add two reps, knock, 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 got a minute? Really? So that's a little segment uh, in the book that he wrote about. And basically, it's the the constant interruptions. Uh, have you ever, have you dealt with those constant interruptions before? Um, 
You know, I I do, and this is one of the chapters that I enjoyed. Um, I'm not gonna say the most, but this is one I really thought about. And then, like you said, the army tells us we have to have an open door policy, but it doesn't say it has to be a 24 seven open door policy either. Uh, and, and he talks about that. Because, yeah, yeah, and I never thought of it that way. Yeah, because when I was running, I was running a warehouse, and it's like I'm trying to whatever plan the inventory that's coming up, and every got a minute got to stop you got to listen to them you got to take care of whatever it is they want to talk to you about and then you know nobody goes bam they're out my door right back to work you know it takes you a minute to get your mind back on track get your cognitive juices firing again and then you get back into it so that five minutes talk might take you seven minutes all right well that's two minutes where that i got to get back somewhere and a lot of times we as leaders you know where we get them back at the end of the day. And now that's minutes that we're taking away from our family. Mm-hmm. So that's why this, I, this was a really good one, man. Uh, I, I like this, this chapter. Oh yeah. And I mean, I thought about how, how often I'm interrupted throughout the day, just for those, those exact same thing. Got a minute. And it's like, sometimes when people come to the office and I don't, you know, I really do enjoy interaction with people, but at the same time, I can tell you, I, I basically deal with about 13 different DA6s. And a DA6, for those of you listening, that's basically a duty roster. And it's how we are able to man different types of duties across the Army. You, you don't just throw people at stuff because to technically that's not fair. So what we do is we run a DA6, hmm. which gives people numbers and puts them in order and does all these crazy things. Well, when you have a larger organization like I have, and I have to run up to 13 different ones, I can tell you right now, Ed, when I sit down to do the DA6s for the following month, it takes me an entire day. And a lot of times, the reason it takes me a whole day is the got a minute. Often, I get a knock at the door and like, hey, hey, boss, you can I talk for a minute? Yeah, no problem. Come in. And it's something that's totally irrelevant or it's something that they could actually have worked out themselves. And normally, that's what I try. And, and I've, I've been trying to use that you know, the coaching habit, uh, the the different things with that and say, okay, well, what's your answer and how would you go about this? And I try to use that on them. But at the same time, it's just the fact that it's a, a it's a point in uh, where I'm breaking my concentration, my thought, my work process to accommodate someone else. And it's, you know, just trying to teach people not to just, you know, pop in, go ahead and make the decision on your own. You, you you're able to do that. I would definitely ask you love. How would you feel if someone on your team leapfrogged and went directly to your supervisor about an issue, though, instead of bringing it to you? Um, so then I've got to look at a lot of things with that, but mainly it could be uh, why. Why did they feel like they couldn't come to me with that? Is it a um, convenience? Was they Were they just there at that moment when they wanted to talk about it? Was it a trust thing? They didn't trust me to handle the problem. So there's a, a few different, you know, aspects of uh, that leapfrog um, effort. And it's something I would talk to them about, too. I, I absolutely would have a conversation later about why. Because uh, if it was something I'm at fault for or something that I can't, I could fix, then that's what I want to do, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things is, and you know what it's like in an organization, as the, as the first one, I have to also, anytime someone wants to go see the commander, they'll often pop by to see me first, just in case, mm-hmm. you know, I, and almost like I'm the gateway to the commander type thing. Yep. And sometimes if they don't come see me and then he's bringing information to me, 
I almost feel like I'm kind of getting, I'm kind of getting sideswiped by someone. Uh, and you know, I don't try to ever convey it as such, but it's still, I don't like that idea. So it's almost like, okay, how do you, how do you kind of relate those to, or not relate those to, how do you, um, how do you work those two in there together? All right. I don't want people just popping in whenever, but at the same time, I don't want the others to go to straight to my boss on something. And it's like trying to mesh that up perfectly. And really he gets into a lot of stuff about that in this book. He talks about, you know, an open door policy is passive. What's needed is an active, safe communication policy. Now, I can tell you, if, if people would rather send me a text message or an email on something that's not a, not like an emergency, I'm more than happy. Normally, if you're wanting to get straight at me, and probably going to hit up on this in the next chapter when you talk about it, but if you want to get straight at me right off the bat, you send me a text message because I'll check that real quick. And it I, I usually don't feel like a massive um, workflow stoppage with a text message so much as I am, you know, with... And, and if that's like, emer- like emergencies, come see me or call me. If it doesn't really need to be taken care of right now, though, I prefer to just get an email. That's just my way of going about things because then I can I can address it as I'm going through and I'm using my workflow that I have going on too, you know. Um, how about you? Do you have like a, a specific like safe communication realm that you like to go with? Um, so – after reading this, I actually do close my door if I'm in my like get after it work time. If I'm working on something um, particular, I've also seen some other effective methods. So a friend of mine, uh, he well, he was my platoon sergeant at the time, but uh, Joe. So Joe was like the watchdog for the first sergeant. So to get to to the first sergeant, Joe was the op sergeant. You had to get through Joe. Well, Joe had a guy named Travis who was his like ops room kind of training room NCO. He was a Sergeant E5. You had to get through Travis to get to Joe to get to the first Sergeant. And that kind of protects that first Sergeant's, you know, time because you got to go through levels. If it's really bogus, Travis was a candid person and he'd be like, you're an idiot. Go handle it yourself. Well, probably not the way to say it, but he would kick people out for stupid stuff. Then if it needed some more attention, he would pass it on and say, hey, you got a minute, Joe, to talk to them, or do they need to come back? So there's other ways to do it other than that, but I have seen that was a pretty good method, um, having an old bulldog on the chain. But, yeah, I, I find – and I so I did some experimentation with this too. I left my door open, and I've seen how many times people just come in to, like, talk about nothing and – uh in a day. And then I close my door when I need to get work done and the same people are there, but they don't come in my office as frequently. So it's like, uh, now we don't have AC in our building and it was in the hundreds, uh, two weeks ago. It's way <laughs> harder. No windows, no AC, uh, in our offices, a little harder to close that door. But I mean, what do you want to get? You want to get your work done now before five o'clock or do you want to stay after five and have your door open? So it's kind of a decision making there. After reading this book recently, I, I have uh, I have a couple of NCOs that work for me in my orderly slash training room. And I went in just last week. I did it twice last week because I wanted to test it out myself. Twice. I walk in their office. I say, hey, guys, I'm in my office. If somebody absolutely needs me, then come knock on the door. If not, the door's going to be shut because I want to get some work done. And it's so I could get in there and just, you know, kind of you know, bang out some work and just get things off my plate that needed to be done. And both times, 
both times I was not interrupted once. I actually finished my work, got up from my desk, walked out and said, hey, guys, was there anything that needed my attention? Uh, And they took care of whatever needed to be done. And I think it kind of signified to them that, hey, I trust you to make the right decisions. And it's the same thing with the, the sergeant's first class that I deal with, too. I tell them all the time. Hey, I trust you guys to make the right decision. You guys know the rules. And if you don't know the rules, then you should be able to look it up. No problem, because you know where to find things. But make the right decisions and and go with it as long as it's not, and I always say, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, then we're good. You know, and that's that's why I really liked about this because later on in this book, he does talk about should the open door be slammed shut? Well, I don't I don't quite think it should be slammed shut. But at the same time, there should be um, certain times that you you kind of block off. And we're going to talk about with uh, the crowd, your calendar piece that you block off to basically concentrate on the work at hand. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Um, and again, crowd your calendar. Um, I think I have that chapter. We're definitely going to talk a little bit about that, too. Uh, and and I think that helps as well. That's a, actually the other chapter that I really took a lot from. So. Um, but the next chapter is the one I'm excited about. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Let me finish up real here, real quick here. All right. So basically throughout this book, this is what you're going to notice. Uh, if you were to, if you were to read the book itself, each chapter goes through the situation, gives you a lot of different types of, uh, information, and then it gives you a takeaway. And then also, it also gives you a, you might or how might you apply this if you're a, and it says a manager, sales professional, sports coach, military officer, or military personnel at all, parent or individual. But the takeaway, that's what I wanted to kind of cover real quick before we jump to the very next one. Communication and problem solving are admirable goals, but the traditional open door policy is a passive effort utilized by only half of all workers. It can also discourage autonomy empowerment and reduce the productivity of managers a more effective solution is to schedule more limited office hours and weekly one-on-ones to proactively solicit the opinions of quieter team members and to actively foster an environment of trust the bottom line the more frequently you communicate and ask questions of your team members the more They'll come to believe that you care and it's a safe environment to bring things to your attention. In case you still have reservations about shutting your open door policy, perhaps you should consider this feedback from Melinda, a very astute manager who sums it all up best. I prefer my boss and even my colleagues to keep their doors closed when they are so busy they don't have time to talk. I'd rather have their wholehearted attention when I have something to discuss with them, then feel that the door is open all the time. Open doors do not equal open minds. Man, I could, I, you, you can't say that anymore. I mean, cause I don't know how many times that I'm so distracted Hmm. when somebody's coming into my office and, and you, you, you saw it when we worked together before. I've I've been that person that came (laughs) in the office. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and instead it'd be like, hold on, man, let, give me, give me a moment. We'll talk about it. Just say, let me finish what I'm doing type thing. And, you know, sometimes people will get up and leave and they'll be like, I'll just come back. Okay, fine. Or I'll stop what I'm doing because obviously they're there for a reason. And sometimes it wasn't for the right reasons. But, <laughs> uh, so a couple questions I want listeners to think about. If you read that chapter, 
Which hours of the day will you strive to protect as your deep work time? Those are the, that's that time that you kind of just set aside and you say, hey, I'm working now. No one should be bothering me. And I close my door. Which days and hours will you reserve for office hours? Office hours, meaning those are the times that you're open for business, for people to just come and go as they please. With that, let's move on to chapter two, Ed. Yes. Yes. Hold on. Let me put my smartphone down. Are you playing playing with your smartphone Uh, right now? (laughs) No. So chapter two is, is shut off your smartphone. I know. It's so amazing. People are like, what? No, I need it. That's part of the problem, though. Oh, yeah. So in this chapter. Right off the bat. In this chapter. chapter. So much science. Oh, Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so much science in here. So the very first study that he talks about, the question is, it, they're asking about using your smartphone in a formal setting, like a meeting or something like that, Brian. <laughs> and at the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, they did a study and 554 full-time working professionals who all earn more than $30,000 a year and were employed by companies with at least 50 employees. They asked the participants about smartphone use uh, in, in uh, formal and informal meetings to uncover attitudes about answering calls, writing emails, reading emails, text messaging, browsing the internet or whatever else they're doing. Here's the key findings. These are just some I'm going to highlight. 86% think it's inappropriate to answer phone calls during formal meetings. 84% think it's inappropriate to write text or emails during formal meetings. I see that all the time. Yeah. 75% think it's inappropriate to read text or emails during those formal meetings. 66% think it's inappropriate to write text or emails during the, the meetings. You know, they talk to the higher ups about this too. Those are the ones. Those are the ones in charge of your career. So if they think that it's inappropriate, and these are people who are in charge of your evaluations, your career, and your advancement, then, I mean, it, it's obviously obviously an issue. Um, yeah. But then there's also, what about your focus? You know, we all say, oh, I, I can focus. And, you know, a good example, and I, I know I'm going to get some heat for this one. Uh, my wife was watching the television series Chernobyl and my wife tends to play with her phone uh, doing whatever when she's watching television. So she decided, well, I'm going to watch, uh, I'm going to watch the first few episodes again. And then she tells me, wow, I missed a lot of stuff in the first episode already. And I'm like, yeah, cause you're on your phone. Like, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, you don't. You cannot focus the same on the on a smartphone uh, during these meetings. So it's almost like uh, back in the day before smartphones, sidebars. If you and I are having a sidebar, I'm not hearing what the speaker has to say until they go, "What do you think?" And I'm like, "Oh, are you talking to me?" <laughs> right. You know, and 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 then they talk about uh, one of the other parts I really enjoyed. They talk about Facebook. And uh, I never thought of it like this. Actually, I just put this on George's question. George had a question like this. But why doesn't Facebook have customer support? Um, well, I, you know what? I always wanted that myself. But I know the answer, and I'm not going to say it. because I know, because you read it, right? <laughs> because we are not the customers. Those of us who are on Facebook, 
meeting family and talking to friends. We're not the customer. Nope. We're the product. Yep. They have 4 million advertisers for Facebook. Those are the customers and they're selling them us. They're selling them our attention. There's teams designed to grab our attention with these banners and these ads. It's like, Ooh, I want to click that 19 people that uh, Kate Upton dated like, Oh, I got to click on that. And that's the stuff that, that clickbait stuff uh, is the problem with Facebook. We're not the customer for them. Yeah. We're, we're the ones whose attention, you know, they're selling these advertisers. Um, and there's, uh, they call them user experience design. Those are people who are designed to figure out how best to grab your attention and keep it uh, through advertising. Man, I could talk about this chapter for a whole episode. I'm not even gonna lie. I know you could, because um, you can also get into the. Uh, but you know, Simon Sinek talks a lot about dopamine. There we go. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. So he talks a lot about dopamine, and this is it. Dopamine, uh, the love drug, is a chemical released in the brain to reinforce pleasurable activities. That's why when, so if you ever really pay attention, and you can be honest with yourself, when you pick up Facebook and you posted that cute picture of you and your dog on a suspension bridge, and nobody's <laughs> liked it, right? Nobody's liked it. You get stressed out over that. You don't, that, that upsets you. <sighs> nobody's liked my picture. But when they like it, you get that little small release of dopamine. And that's where the addiction to cell phones comes in. That's why you pick up your cell phone so much. So I'm going to tell you, face um, at least on my on the iPhone, Apple actually has a feature now, screen time. And it will tell you, on average, how much time you spend on the phone daily. It will tell you uh, how many minutes you spend in each different thing and it breaks it down for the week and then it'll tell you at the end of the, like on the end of the week, it'll say, Oh, your percentage is down. I don't know if all the different platforms do that, but when they first put that in, it was eye opening to me. I was like, man, I am on my phone way too much. And I have reduced that. And I'm also, again, a stats guy. So I'm like, I got to get under my percentage for last week. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, the dopamine is great, but we have to realize there's some psychology to why you grab that, you know, grab that phone so often. And I've, I've experienced it. Like you post a whole bunch of stuff and you're like, he, 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 and nobody likes it. And then it's evolved. It's evolved, right? Like they liked it, but nobody commented. Oh, if you like it, you could have said something. So based off of that, right, based off of dopamine and some of the research, 40% of people check their phone within five minutes of waking up. I can tell you in my household, it's 50%. One does, one does. I'm not saying which way, but it's 50%. I can tell you in my household, it's 100%. (laughs) Within five minutes. First of all, when I wake up, I got to go to the latrine as fast as possible. I don't know how anybody can, I guess, you go do what you do and you come back within five minutes. But in our house, we're 50% for checking your phone within five minutes. Check your phone on average 47 more times throughout the day. And 30% of us check the phone right before we go to bed. So you're talking 47, 48 times a day you're touching that phone. And I am higher than that. I will tell you that for sure. Apple phone is too sensitive. That's my excuse. But the other thing, so young adults use their phones 85 times a day over five hours in total. Here's the crazy thing, Brian, but what's what's it really hurting, right? Well, in 2012, a woman who was texting fell off of a cliff in Alaska and died. 
She was using her phone. Just, just walk right up. Like, how engaged are you? Uh, you know, that you just walk, you don't even see the cliff coming. Um, 2015, a man who was distracted by his phone fell to his death in San Diego on Christmas Day. Caught my interest. I was traveling recently and you watch in the airport. You can watch people barely not walk into each other with those phones in their hand. It's, it's wild, man. Half of all managers in a, in a survey believe that the, the phone, right, is the number one killer of productivity. 75% of managers believe that their workers are losing two or more hours a day because of distraction, according to the survey. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that where I work now, you're not allowed to have your cell phone in your office. You do have to go out. There's a secure area where you can lock it up. You do see people out there, but not as much as you may think because we're so busy, but I can tell you my productivity is way higher now than it's ever been when I can't have that phone near me. Wow. In the article, Brian, he also talks about surveys where they said, okay, what if they're not touching their phone? It's just sitting on the desk and it's still a distractor. I think smartwatches make it worse because I can have my cell phone right on in my desk. Let's say not where I work now. Cause I can't even have a smartwatch, but if my cell phone's on my desk and I go to the latrine or I go to a meeting and my smartwatch pings that the cell phone just got a message. What am I doing in the meeting? I'm stopping and looking at my watch, trying to read this little bitty text, right? More distraction. Smartwatches are just making it easier to be distracted. Here's the best part of all this science, man. This is amazing for the smartphones. Uh, in the same survey that we just talked about, the majority of employees reported they didn't even have work email on their phones. So what are they doing? 65% admitted to personal messages. 25% admitted to playing games, right? Getting their candy crush in. And 4% actually admitted to watching porn. I don't know why they would admit that. <laughs> Who admits to that? <laughs> And that's exactly what Kevin Cruz says. Who admits to that? Like, um, and when we communicate in the military, through, so now we use Signal, right? They were using WhatsApp, but I guess it was unsafe. Now we're using the Signal app because it's uh, encrypted. Man, my platoon sergeant puts everything out over that Signal app. So my phone is going crazy during the day out there where I cannot see it. So I don't get bothered by it. But just imagine like every 10 minutes that phone and then every time somebody responds, right? The phone has to let me know that somebody responds. So, and and again, I highlight so much stuff with this, uh, with this particular section. That I think that our listeners would really uh, appreciate. So, the survey that I talked about with like the presence of the phone basically was conducted at the University of Texas, Texas in Austin. So, we talked about dopamine, the good feeling drug, right? But when I said that you go to the phone and you have no likes, your body releases cortisol known as the stress hormone Mm. also the other term that he uses is the fear of missing out right fear of missing out causes stress from the release of cortisol you want to be able to check that phone you know i I can admit that when i first got this job they were like oh you can't your phone and your watch i was like one how am i going to keep up with my steps and then two i was worried about my you know like my phone like what if i need this well I mean, I'm older. I was in an army where there was no phone. Guess what they did when they wanted to talk to Brian? They walked to his office and said, got a minute. (laughs) (laughs) But they did. You communicated face to face. Uh, So constant checkers, according to a survey, people who constantly check their phone, 20% more stressed than those who don't check their phone frequently. 
Those who check their work meals, eat emails on the weekend, 50% more stressed. So these are just like stress factors. Like this is all the bad stuff uh, about it. And then, uh, yeah, I'm a big James Bond fan and we all have that capability now, right? I have a phone. I can record you. There's apps I can get where I can record hundreds of hours without you even knowing I'm recording you speaking. I can take pictures without you knowing. I just learned it, you know, with the headset that comes with your iPhone. If you click the volume buttons at the same time, it'll take a picture with the phone. So we're all, we all have a capability to be James Bond now. And in the press, it's happened, right? We've had people, uh, Roger Ailes getting caught saying stuff he wasn't supposed to say. Um, coaches getting caught making threats at practices and stuff that where they wouldn't even think normally. Well, here's the consequence to that, Brian. The consequence to that is how likely are you to be open and candid with your responses when you may be getting recorded and somebody can release it later, right? If you and I are brainstorming, What's the likelihood that that brainstorm activity is going to be really honest? Because I don't want to say nothing stupid and get caught on tape or video. So, And then, you know, within the Army, uh, if you get caught saying something or do something stupid, it ends up on that uh, WTF moments, Army yes. moments. Uh, and, and then you're like, oh, great. I don't want to be on that, you know? Yeah, and it changes how – it could change who you are. That fear – through these smartphones, and that's why we, we, you know, we're worried about smartphones nowadays. So the last thing I'm gonna go over because it's the key, really, the takeaway. The combination of internet and smartphones provides us with an unprecedented connection to information, entertainment, colleagues, family, and friends. The ambiguity of smartphones and the never-ending stream of new messages, notifications, now leads to chronic distraction, which impairs productivity, can jeopardize safety. Leaders should model the way by silencing their phones and keeping them out of sight. I got a safety brief the other day, Brian, and I can tell you that my first sergeant gave that safety brief reading it from his smartphone in front of the whole formation. What? I feel like that, that sh- yes, that shows a lack of, uh, uh, of g- it's not genuine. You know what I mean? Like, yes, he read verbatim from his smartphone. This is what the, this is exactly what Kevin Cruz is talking about. And I got it. Everybody's so used to smartphones. People have a hundred ways to defend the use of smartphones. And, and I use it. I do use it. I use it for a lot of stuff. I don't use it to crowd my calendar, which I'm going to talk about coming up real soon. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, in, in your next chapter, you're going to talk about having no rules. And I think they talk about some other stuff in there that's key. But the smartphone thing, Brian, I see your side, but at the same time, I mean, just uh, I, I challenge you to kind of look around your office and, and just observe like your orderly room clerks and see when they're using the phone. And because I think that uh, a lot of productivity goes down the drain because of those phones now. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I'm starting to kind of see that light a little bit now. I enjoy the idea of having uh, the, the accessibility of everything I need. But at the same time, I can see how that whole thing. That's also another, to me, another form of the got a minute, um, the distraction that kind of pulls me away from stuff. And yeah, I said I can answer a quick text, but sometimes you'll get a message. You'll be like, whoa, and you got to drop everything to handle whatever this message is talking about. Or mm-hmm. you see something, you hear something. And now on the flip side, and this is, this is where I like, I'm, I'm like iffy about this thing. And that's like, I like to have 
my smartphone in my office and I, I'll usually turn on like some background music or I'll turn on a podcast, you know, something that I can just kind of, it's always going in the background for me that I may not be listening to, or I may be listening to, I don't know. It just depends, but it's kind of weird. Um, I, my question to you is, so you said that you all, uh, you can't take your, you can't take your smartphone into your actual work area. Right. Obviously, this means there must be some type of communication process that's going on to keep everybody informed the way we used to do it. Am I, am I saying that correctly or? Yes, we, uh, we, we do what Mr. Graham Bell created for us to do. We pick up a phone, but we do email, which also the email can be distracting too, because you know, you're in the middle of working on a slide for uh, a briefing and then you get this notification, you got email. Guess what? I got to go to my outlook email, Right. Uh, and I got to check it. A lot of people, a lot of people do. You'll, you'll walk in the office and they'll have, we have two screens, right? One screen is email. They're working on one screen, their emails up on the other so they can see that. And what Kevin Cruz has for the key idea for this is stop responding, responding like Pavlov's dog. Every time your phone dings, mm. turn off all notifications and pick up your phone when you want to use it. So he's saying not, he's not saying don't use it. But he's really, and I have, I have absolutely turned off all my notifications because you get these little notifications and that creates that desire to check the phone, right? And then that's how you pick up your phone so much during the day is checking these notifications. Like, oh, that's nothing. Oh, Brian, Brian rode 20 miles on his bike. I got to make sure I ride 21 today. But uh, when I want to check it. So for me, I only look at my phone before I go to work. I look at it right before I go in. And then, and usually I'm looking for a message from you just in case. And then I don't check it again till lunch. I just leave it out in the locker or actually I put mine on top of a locker, but I just leave it out there. Yeah. So that is the second chapter is pretty good. Yeah. I, I like to, this, this document that you sent me, what he says here. Uh, and this, I think this is a good way to start what you're talking about. He, he basically writes, uh, decide how often you will check for work related emails and message throughout the day three times a day, hourly, every 15 minutes. I think that's a, I think that's a good idea. Uh, I, I've also heard of a, um, it, it's like a work rest ratio that, uh, that is found to be the, one of the most effective that could work with this. It's a 25 minutes work, five minutes break, 25 minutes work, five minutes break. And you keep doing that. And I think that would work in conjunction with the check the smartphone thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it, so yes, and no, because is it really a five-minute break or is it a five-minute break plus a latrine break plus getting situated and now it's an eight-minute break? Right, yeah. I mean, it's, and that, that, now that comes down to the discipline, Yeah. right? You have to have discipline to make sure that you're taking the right breaks. And, and I mean, maybe you have a stopwatch. I don't know. Um, I can definitely tell you uh, for me to take a latrine break, it's going to take just slightly over five minutes because I have to go downstairs. I have to go all – yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but – I just I like the idea that you know he's trying to give up options you know and he's not saying you have to completely end all that but try it out at first and try little increments to kind of wean yourself off of it also and and, and the last point he does make also there is to commit never using it while driving and I couldn't stress that enough uh, I used to I used to be I used to be a habitual offender of that man like using my phone while I was driving and ever since I got Bluetooth in my vehicle. I've, I, I freaking love it because literally I've got hands on wheel at all times. So my calls, I'm literally just, I hit the button right there at the wheel 
and now I'm talking to them, you know, and I don't have to pick up the phone. I don't have to be distracted. And it's almost like they're right there in the vehicle with me, just like as if my wife was driving beside me. So I do like that idea. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty good, too. I, I was going to say with that is I was bad because I would justify it by I'm just changing music. And uh, and so I started picking at my wife for messing with her phone. And then she so what she says to me and she got it from me. But what she says to me and she might use different colorful words, but she basically looks at me and goes, oh, my life don't matter. And when you really think about it, that's, like, that's you know what I mean, though? Like if you're using your cell phone and your passenger says, my life don't matter. Well, yeah, your life matters to me very much. Ah, so, uh, I mean, it's I a good you. tool. It's a tool. It's a way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to get into the very next one, chapter three, which is basically what the book is. It's in the title of the book, Have No Rules. And the key idea of chapter three is that, Every rule takes away the uh, any away the opportunity to make a decision, thus leading to disengagement. Uh, replace rules with values as guardrails, conversations, and coaching. Man, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't stress that enough. To replace rules with values as guardrails, conversations, and coaching. So right off the bat, he he kind of goes into the the idea of how rules aren't. They're not started with the intention of being bad, right? Um, right. A, a simple one. For instance, you, you know just as well as I do, that there's that unwritten rule of don't walk on the grass. Uh, <laughs> we've, known that for, we've known that one for years in the Army, right? And I'm, a, I'm an habitual offender of that. Like I look for grass to walk on just because I'm not supposed to. But it's like, it's like an unwritten rule and it's like, well, what's – you know, if I'm in a hurry – I got it. I should have been there earlier or whatever, but I'm just one of those people that I never liked that rule. And it, it doesn't, it's not meant to be something bad. It's just, it was, it was kind of like a created thing. And it was funny when Sergeant Major Daly, Sergeant Major of the Army Daly, uh, was about to change out. I remember he put out um, his top 10 senior leaders uh, points. And I want to say it was like number one or two was if all you're worried about is people walking on the grass, you may be in the wrong profession. And I thought, Oh mm-hmm. my goodness, I can't believe he said that, you know? And that's that whole mindset of, you know, get rid of this. Don't, don't, don't hold on to these stupid rules all the time. You know, um, you know, and you have to, then you have to look at it, you know, which rules in the organization seem to be, you know, the ones that disempower or disengage employees. If I have rules that like, for instance, that I need you to come speak with me every time you make a decision. Well, are you really making a decision anymore? Or I'm making the decision and you're just bringing up the problems. Those are the ones I, I, I've always, you know, not everything needs to go through me. You know, as long as I've given you guidelines and that's the key point though, it is my responsibility say as the, the leader or the, the person who's in charge to set up those guidelines and make sure I communicate those, you know, thoroughly that everyone understands, Hey, this is your lane. This is your lane. Do what you need to in it. Um, and he, he kind of goes through all that. Uh, to to kind of show that you know rules rules tend to reduce accountability. I don't know if you've seen that before, uh, Ed. I know I have. Like, what happens is is people start second guessing what they are allowed to do because there's so many rules and they don't know all the rules and they're like, oh, I don't know if you should make a decision. Let me go talk to somebody else. Yeah. You know, I mean, it happened. It the blue books. <laughs> yes, yes, things like that. I mean that that can that can really you know. Uh, hinder. Uh, right here, he talks about leadership guru and my personal mentor, Bill Erickson, frequently says every rule takes away the opportunity to make a choice. 
as more and more of the job is dictated by processes, policies, and regulations, employees will feel less and less ownership over their work and their emotional commitment wanes. The fewer choices people have, the fewer chances to make a decision. The more they'll think it's your company and not their company. Oh my goodness. That is so true because what you're doing is is now you're taking everything away from them and you're making it yours. And what's the, and to me, the fastest way to literally disengage anyone is to do that. But if you make everything theirs, then they don't want it to fail. They want to see it through the process. They want to own it. So have less rules. Our organization's values clear and actionable. Would you say, do you think, you know, the Army's um, values are clear and actionable, Ed? Yes, they uh, give them to me as soon as I get to basic training. They give me their values. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But then again, it's like, do we do we truly understand them, you know? Well, they also make you memorize the definition, but there's no buy-in there because it's the Army making me, it's just one more thing to memorize. I mean, yeah, they're, down the line, you kind of get a better understanding, but initially... No, I just know these are the seven things and I need to understand their definitions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that's in a sense, that's why like when I talk, uh, when I talk to the uh, group of people, when, um, if you remember correctly, not too long ago, I mentioned how I like to mesh the trainings together. I like to mesh the values with, I take army values and I mesh it with EO and Sharp. The question I always start off with is we're going to start some, EO, some uh, army's values training. What is the most important army value to you. Mm-hmm. So I, I literally take it. I put it on them. Now we're often told all of them are supposed to be the same, right? Yes. At the same time, you know, just as well I, as I do, some of them mean a little bit more because of our own personal values. And that's how you connect to me. That's how you connect to someone, right? You, if I can connect to another person because I am engaging what is, has meaning to them, as soon as I can do that, now I'm engaging them to kind of take ownership within the organization because now that particular conversation has developed into, well, this organization is about the organization. It's about you. Right. Uh, for instance, let's, a lot of times I get the, the same one of, well, respect. Respect is an important value to me. Exactly. You know, well, let me think about, let's think about respect and, and how respect equates to a lot of the the problems that we end up having, you know, for instance, a sharp violation, basically a sexual assault or sexual harassment. Is that person losing sight of respect of another person? Are they losing sight of respect to their family? Are they, are they losing sight of their own dignity and respect? And usually I get the answer. Yeah, absolutely. I said, exactly. And that's why I want you really hold tight to your value there. And, and that's how I do it. I call it their value, even though the army says it's the army, seven army values. But what I'm doing is I'm engaging that person in what is theirs. And now it's one more thing that they can hold tight to and say, yeah, you know, exactly. You're right. Or I like to also like say in EO or, you know, equal opportunity is, you know, when somebody uses uh, a negative tone in a manner that's uh, racist or, or bigot or, or any or sexist, they're losing respect, something they hold on tight to. And let's just say, like, for instance, and I'm talking, let's just say I'm talking to Ed and that was his. And I say, hey, Ed, you know, 
if you truly feel respect is the thing, I have to count upon you to really hold tight to respect. And if you see this type of action taking place, that you get involved because I know you truly care about respect. And because I did that, what happens is it changes their uh, their mentality about it, and they want to be more involved with it because now it's theirs, right? I mean, that's and that's how I tend to go about it. Your thoughts? In the science of likability, we talked a little bit about those shared values is what drives that relationship, right? And and being able to pick up on that, and then being able to take you know what you understand of somebody's uh, values. So what you basically did is you took what you understood to be their values and you kind of harnessed it and used it for something good. Right. But those, and like I said, I like that the army gives them to us because we do reference them. I mean, 21 years, we still reference them. Um, and, and that's how, you know, that's that connection that we have that you're looking for through, uh, through values. Uh, so that that's important. Absolutely. Yeah. And you think about it though. Having so many rules to get things done, he and this is this is we've talked about this before. Um, when we talk about with the army training, if you remember correctly, too many rules lead to too many lies. Uh, here we go. The U.S. Army requires company commanders to put their soldiers through 297 days of mandatory training each year, even though there are only 256 days available. <laughs> A U.S. Army War College study explains in the rush by higher headquarters to incorporate every good idea into training the total number of training days required by all mandatory training directives literally exceeds the number of training days available yet commanders all report being compliant non-compliance is not an option how can this be he says retired army officer leonard wong and stephen garris published a fascinating study titled lying to ourselves dishonesty in the army profession although the army officers interviewed wouldn't use the term lie they admitted that they routinely met required standards by getting creative by having one soldier take the online training repeatedly for everyone in the squad by filling out forms and reports without actually doing the work. A term frequently used was, we pencil whipped it. Oh my goodness, how many times have we heard that before, Ed? Pen- somebody, oh, that person probably just pencil whipped it. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, Brian. I have been guilty of uh, the online training workaround. I call it a workaround. It's really cheating, honestly. I, I was, I'm guilty of that. I've done it before. I'm not saying now, but I have done it in my career because you get these taskings and, you know, like, so I have a warehouse that I have to run and I got 40 soldiers and I got two computers available and the training takes an hour each. You know what I mean? Like, and then they say, Hey, we need this turned in tomorrow, mm, but we're going to have to figure some things out. It may mean I have to get off my computer. Now I got three soldiers I've also seen people take PDFs and open it up with uh, Adobe Pro and just change names, which that is definitely a no-no. Uh, I actually caught somebody doing that when I was at the academy and, and had to make them redo their their stuff. But there's workaround, but it's the pressure, right? Like, come on, you you know it's unrealistic. Yes, uh, some of that stuff, and, and you work around it, but it's not the right answer. It's so much better to say, "Hey, first arm." I didn't get it done and I'm working it. I got this many more to do. 
and and then hope that he understands. And if he doesn't, okay, he's not going to kick you out the army because your team didn't finish it. I mean, you may have to take that that one time. You may have to take his disappointment once. It happens, you know. You and I can both safely say now, though, um, since uh, around that study took place, there has been drastic changes, and we no longer have to fulfill so much training that they once talked about. Uh, that those things were eliminated because they found that a lot of it was just repetitive stuff that were supposed to be preventive measures, but they weren't really preventing much. Uh, the, you know, and, and it wasn't helping anything out. Instead, what it did it was just overcrowded us overcrowded our calendar or overcrowded our days where like you said where maybe we had to stay too late because we couldn't finish doing everything during the day i I mean but i can tell you right now like at this point in time i my commander and i we we can there are days where we're very chock full with checking up on certain tasks that need to be done right and at times it makes you wonder like are some of these things completely necessary or not so, I mean, it, it's it's kind of – it's one of those things where it could be important or it may not be, but we still have to do it no matter what. And But it's not as bad as it used to be. It's much better. Uh, I want to dig in a little bit deeper here about uh, living in a no-rules organization. Rules are a way of senior managers to micromanage from afar. Inevitably, they disempower workers in the spirit of protecting against very low chances of risk or loss. Innovation, creativity, and risk-taking plunge. Morale drops as there is no sense of ownership. Nobody likes to be micromanaged. Your ultimate goal is that your people make good decisions. To accomplish that, they must feel ownership of and accountability for those decisions. As individuals in your company think through decisions and prepare to answer for them, they develop their own ownership mentality. Man, that that I mean that that falls right along the lines of what Jocko often talks about with you know having that decentralized command and allowing people to own what's going on, and that often falls back on the the la- uh, lack of rules of you will do this, you will do that, you can only do this, you can't only do that, all these things, you know. Um, then he kind of goes into he likes to talk about other organizations and he uses Netflix as a um, as a good like jumping off point. Uh, if you're familiar with the technology startup scene, you're probably heard of Netflix culture deck and its legendary influence. Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg called this simple PowerPoint presentation. One of the most important documents to come out of Silicon Valley. And it's been viewed millions of times across the globe. So if you hadn't checked it out yet, uh, it's called the Netflix Culture Deck. I've looked it up, and it's pretty simple. Um, they literally have two primary rules. Those two primary rules are invest in hiring high-performance employees and then build and maintain a culture that rewards high performers and weeds out continuous, unimproved low performers. I couldn't agree with that more, and I'm, I'm all about that. And I think I personally think uh, as a service, I think we're kind of moving towards that. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it also, but to me, I know that, uh, for instance, how they're going to go about promotions now and how they're going about evaluations. I think that's where they're going to start weeding out the low performers. Yeah, no, that's what I I think that's what it is, too. I think that uh, and that's important because honestly, 
in the current state of our organization, um, as a whole, as a military, like there's some low performers that have made it to the top. I, I mean, I call them check collectors because honestly, they come to work and they really don't care about anything at work. They're just there. And uh, I think we're going the right way because we're going to start pushing some of them to uh, the civilian sector. And they're going to see that, you know, it's life isn't as easy as they thought it would be. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, once you once you start, uh, I think once you start promoting the right people or you're hiring the right people, that's a key thing, too. You know, obviously, our hiring process is a little bit different than normal uh, because obviously we, we grow within a lot. I mean, a ton. That's pretty much all we do is grow within. You know, you start from the from the lower ranks and they move up um, And a lot of other organizations outside of like the military. I know they can fire, get rid of a CEO and bring in a new CEO from another organization instead of always growing it from within. I, I think that's one of those things, though, that I'm kind of indifferent about. So I, I can't I wouldn't I, I don't speak. I can't speak professionally on the civilian side of it yet, but I'm kind of iffy because sometimes I think growing within works. And then other times I'm like, ah, it's good to have a fresh new look. Let's look at how can you apply the principles uh, to your work environment? How much more time and money should you invest into the hiring process? Because that's what they're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about having no rules. Well, to be able to have no rules, you have to hire the right people. So you don't have to worry about people doing the constant wrong thing. And when I say the wrong thing by basically losing money for the organization or or creating a nuisance for everyone else around them. Another one, how are your managers being evaluated for building great teams or for compliance or rules and getting all the reports submitted on time? Ooh, that one, that one, that one's one of the more important ones for me, even in the service. I'm more worried about are you building a good conducive team? Then I am, are you following, are you trying to like correct all the wrong rules, you know, or that, you know, that you're getting everything done, submitted completely on time. Senior leaders, it's really about building the teams and, and using decisive planning and, and, and taking action to me. Some people, they see it differently. What type of culture are you producing? Is it designed so high performers will thrive or to protect against low performers? So you, that's another one too. When I was a recruiter, I was a high performer in, in a recruiting sense. You got rewarded for being a high performer. Well, they changed that to a, like a team process. And really it was basically a whole team of people could ride the back of one person in a sense. And I didn't, I didn't feel like that was fair at the time. I was like, man, I'm doing all this hard work and I'm not, you know, I'm not reaping all the benefits. Other people are getting, you know, it's, it's like socialism here. What's going on? You know? I definitely think that, you know, the high performers, they should be treated as such. If you're working harder, then you should get more, you know? And it's it's just like if I work harder to make more money, then obviously I'm going to make more money. I never understood um, – and this was, this was something I've always thought about when I was younger. If you're an hourly wage type person, I always thought, well, then why not work more hours so you can make more money? Uh, and I've always had that attitude. Um I know some people are like, you know, well, they're like, oh man, I just want to take a day off or, or I need to call on a sick because I just don't feel like working. I'm like, but then you don't have money if you don't work. So I guess that's just, that's my point of view on it. Are, do you, are you indifferent to that, Ed, or what do you think? No, and I'm a big fan of rewarding high performers. I mean, when I, so when I came in early in the military, that's how it was. Like, 
if you're the high performer, you're the one going to get a waiver and get promoted. If you weren't, then you just wait for whatever, wait for the automatic stuff. So high perform, rewarding your high performers. I mean, I'm a big fan of cutting, cutting dead weight uh, from the team. Because uh, I think if you get rid of the, the de- dead weight from your team, you reward your high performers. We go right back to what you said is important. You build a strong team that way. And then as he goes on, and you think about it, okay, so we're wanting high performers, people that are doing the right thing because it's just it's ingrained in them, that type of sense. Now I want to think about this. Rules by their nature send the message that you cannot be trusted to do the right thing, the smart thing. Rules are not to be broken. Guidelines are perceived as educational. They say, here's what we think is right in most circumstances, but do what's in the best interest of the company. I love using that. This is what I would do, but do it the way you think. I like to give advice, but you don't have to do it my way. To me, that's that's a good way to kind of, you kind of engage them, but at the same time, if you say this is the way I would do it, but you don't have to do it that way, you can't be mad if they decide to do it their own way. If you truly want it done your way, then you should do it yourself instead. But we don't always have time for that. And that's why we have to kind of think about these things. You know, what decisions am I willing to delegate to my team members? I have to realize that I can't make all these decisions myself because if I make them all myself, then why do I need my team members? Well, obviously, I need them because I don't have time to do everything. So I have to be able to delegate them down. Or what decisions uh, do they wish I would delegate to them? Well, I would think if you wanted to, uh, you know, if, if I'm a team member and I have a boss and the, the boss says, hey, what decisions do you want to take on your plate? Well, I want to take all the ones on my plate that are within my realm of work. I don't want the decisions that are going to affect Joe over there in accounting that I have nothing to do with. But I, I would like to have some control of my area. And it helps me kind of, it gives me um, maneuver room, right? That I can kind of, I can sway a little bit different directions, but I don't go outside the bounds too far, but I can, I'm able to make things happen. Uh, what information do they need to have in order to make the right decision? Personally, I would say the information that they need to have is what are the values of this organization? Do everything legally, morally, and ethically correct. If you if you stay within legally, morally, and ethically, and when I say ethically, um, I'm often referring to like for instance like EO and uh, Sharp, like within our realm. I'm not going to violate somebody's civil rights. I'm not going to violate somebody's body of some sorts. So if I'm saying ethically, you know, so legally there are specific laws out there, and obviously we can't break. Like don't murder someone. Oh, that's yeah, that's a good idea. You know, probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> and then morally, when I mean morally. I'm talking about basically values because our morals are normally embedded in our values or they're the same thing kind of thing. So if you're following the laws that are set for us, the values that are given to us are that we, that we've adopted really. And then the ethics or basically the, you know, the areas of equal opportunity and sexual harassment and all those different things. If we follow those, then I think the ball field should be open up to everything else for them to figure out what they want to do. Uh, how can we change our policies into guidelines? I think 
with that in the army it's a little bit tougher because we do have we have regulations that are very strict and we have other regulations that are very open up and in most in you know it's i find funny ed when i thought about this in most regulations it leaves open to interpretation for the commander to decide you ever notice that yeah yeah no that's always been a yeah like this is it but it's and that's actually a problem with some of our stuff is it's an interpretation so does it mean this or do they mean that yeah Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, and that, that's the kind of, that's way we, you know, you kind of got to go with the rules is I like to discuss it with my commander and that way we kind of, uh, let's, 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 let's leave it up for, you know, them to be able to decide off of this. We're just going to say, Hey, don't go too far here. Don't go for too far there and go for it. You know? Um, because in most cases they're, <laughs> they're going to do whatever's not going to put them in jail. Hopefully, you know, <laughs> that's always the scary one. Um, so let's the takeaway. Let's let's go into the takeaway of this book. Rules, policies, and procedures are implemented with the best of intentions to minimize risk, primarily financial loss. Uh, because we as leaders can't be everywhere, we can't watch everyone. We implement rules to protect against wasteful spending, wasting time, and poor quality. By protecting against the bad choices of the minority, about 3%, according to Netflix experience, we are taking away the opportunity for 97% of our team members to reflect on company values, to develop decision-making skills, and to deepen their feelings of ownership and accountability. Instead of rules, leaders need to hire talent who can be trusted, make company values actionable, set guidelines, and be willing to coach those who make honest mistakes. And that's that last one. That one's the one that sticks the most and resonates. Willing to coach those who make honest mistakes. Bob Chapman, he talks about, I want to say, in Everybody Matters, uh, where he's discussing about, and, and actually, I think also Simon Sinek, he, he writes about it in uh, Leaders Eat Last. He talks about where there's this one company that instead of firing people, when they make a mistake, they just they realize instead let's just train them, and that they found that the production actually went up. And I like that idea. I always have. You ready to move on, Ed? You know, well, I was thinking of the whole time, Brian. We talk about the curriculum change. You remember what else we changed when we changed the curriculum at the academy? We changed a bunch of the rules, and we also allowed the class to develop their own. Right? Yeah, that was that was probably one of the. I think that was one of the uh, the key points. And it's you know what I found funny though, Ed was how often those rules that they came up with were very similar to the ones we already are, had already had. Yeah. And, you know, I wondered how much of that was just something that's been programmed into them as soldiers attending classes. But then these guys are very young in their career. So for you and I, we've been giving them rules our whole career that they've now just become a norm. And they're always the first thing we talk about. But for them, they were pretty young in their career. And they did frequently uh, 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 match up. But we let them take ownership. I mean, at least I know when I taught it, what I would do is make my student get up there and be the scribe and have them be the one to lead discussions and develop their classroom, uh, you know, norms, we call them. So we did stop the rule thing, really. You know, we had guidelines. We knew there was a policy letter about profanity. So we knew that that was going to have to be one of them. Yeah, obviously. Uh, and tobacco use. But the rest of it was them. So that's what I was thinking about as you read this chapter. Yeah, and you know what? It's funny because not only did 
did we do that? But also, if you remember correctly, how we had a lot of other like just just crazy rules within the organization, and we actually put them on the table to be gotten rid of, and we got rid of them. And it wasn't like the place burnt down because we got rid of these rules. Now, some people didn't like it. I, I that's what I did notice too is when you do decide to get rid of rules. Sometimes you have um, you could consider them as the old guard yep. in a sense of an organization. <laughs> And they are like, it's almost like they're going to lose their mind because now it feels like they're losing all their power and all that because they don't have the rules. And I would often question those people, like, well, what's it really hurt? So let give an example, the parking. Remember the parking situation? Yes. Like everybody got upset because we said, hey, yeah, okay. And, you know, let them park. They can park anywhere except for these particular spots, but not, you know what I mean? And we, and we, we basically – you know, we marked up certain spots where just cadre would park, but they could park anywhere they want to. We didn't have to worry about it. And it was like you you thought with some people, you thought the world had ended, you know, and we do the AARs. If you remember correctly, there are a couple times after classes, we do the AARs. And that was always one of the things that was brought up. Oh, they should have to go back to parking in their designated spots. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, but what's it hurting? And I would always I always thought it was funny, too. You ask the question. But what's it hurting? What, what is there something wrong? And no one could ever give you a good answer, like a legit problem, other than, well, it gives us control. Oh, okay, we want control. That's what we're wanting. <laughs> I always love that. Yeah, and and you talk about like uh, hiring the right person. Okay, well, guess what? So I had a problem with it at first because they were leaving when they weren't supposed to be leaving. But guess what? When you catch them doing that. And you put them out of the course, that's like getting rid of the person you hired that wasn't right a right fit. They weren't a right fit for a leadership course. They did the wrong thing, send them back to their unit, and then the course continues. The course isn't going to stop because three soldiers decide, well, I'm going to go change at home. They're not going to know. Mm-hmm. They're going to get caught. Eventually, they get caught, and then you just remove them from the course. So that's kind of where I was. My, yeah, it was interesting as you read that, that that all kind of played into that. Yeah, and, uh, you know it's even change. you know it's even more funny is you mentioned that about the, the if they get caught late, they were doing that before, anyways. You know, people were doing that before because we would catch people before doing it. It was just it was easier to see who was leaving because maybe they yeah certain times, but yeah, it didn't matter either way. It didn't matter. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't sweating it much. Um, I think I think a lot of people got crazy when they, you know just certain types of rules you know disappeared and they're like oh but i don't know what to do it's like just be yourself be a person you know yeah. let them make the right decision <laughs> so all right yeah uh we're gonna uh, through what's that yeah no so it's funny brian that you mentioned be yourself because i, I think that plays into this uh next chapter actually I, you're you are uh, correct yeah so this next chapter is titled be likable not liked and, you know, if you just take it at a glance, you're kind of like, wait a minute. But it does make sense. And the key idea of this chapter, honestly, is uh, a leader needs to be liked. A leader, a leader's need to be liked can slow down decision making and impede constructive feedback. Team members don't need another friend. They need a leader. And when I when I read this chapter, man, like uh Honestly, you could almost just right off the top, like some of this stuff to me anyway, it seems to be uh, common sense. So 
when when you're a friend, right? That's just a social interaction. It's just a pleasure from you know my. I enjoy hanging out with Michelle Weber and Brian Weber, right? That's that's enjoyable. I'm not their boss, whatever, but I definitely I I get some social feedback from that. Yes, but when you so now we slap the boss title on. Let's say I you know I did work for you for a month, right? So it's going to be easy because you're going to probably be defensive to yourself and say, "Oh, I would have done the right thing." But in most time, most instances, Brian. When they say, hey, we need somebody to go out there and police call the brass, uh, it's 100 degrees out. Brian might not send Ed because, you know, he knows, oh, he hasn't been feeling good for a few days or because they're friends. He may send somebody else. He may not make that decision, right? Oh, yeah. When you look at maybe hesitant or ruining that friendship. Right. So and that's that's really what he's saying. It's okay to be likable. But you can't have that desire to be light because when when you have that desire to be light, maybe they ask for a name to do something and it's a, a terrible detail. And, you know, you hesitate because you, I don't want to send Ed, but he's really the guy that should go. I don't want to, you know, um, split second decision making in combat. Like, um, you know, I, I can tell you for certain there was a sergeant major. And he was too friendly with one of the staff sergeants. He actually walked the staff sergeant's wife down the aisle. Like he was a little too involved. And wow. yeah. And they found out she was pregnant and the Sergeant major openly said, well, he's not going on any more convoys. He's got a baby coming. You have a 500 person battalion with guys who have kids going outside into Iraq in the streets of Iraq every day. But this one dude, you're going to say no, because he's got a kid coming. That's mm. an example of being too friendly with somebody uh, in, in your food chain. You know, uh, have you seen something like that too? Um, well, I, I, I would have to say yes. And it's funny because it was during our last deployment together. I noticed a certain person that you and I both do not like <laughs> constantly riding in someone else's vehicle who is the one of the senior people in our organization. And I even seen a few times when that particular senior person uh, was not in the vehicle and that person that we both disliked uh, was in that vehicle just riding around. And I, I remember I walked up and I walked up to my first sergeant at the time and I said to him, I said, uh, you know, is there is there some mentorship going on there or something? Because I would love to get s- some senior mentorship too, and I, I I voiced my opinion about it, and I thought, well, that does that doesn't seem fair. It seems like there's favoritism there, and at the same time, I knew how that 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 junior individual acted towards his subordinates, and to me, I thought that guy he must think he's above the rules or something because he can treat people like he does. And I just, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah. And, and that's what, and we are going to, we do have a chapter that says ha, uh, play favorites, but I don't think that it's talking about that. And we're going to, I know it's discuss not, that, but I can tell you it's not. Um, but yeah. So in that situation too, so that the, the one that uh, the junior guy, right. Gets an evaluation. He doesn't agree with, he doesn't sign it. It goes to the senior guy who then calls in the Raider and talks to them about changing it because this could hurt his career. And the, the Raider says, yeah, I'm not changing a word. 
but they tried to encourage them to change it and they did not change it and it did not get signed just so you know hmm. it went up unsigned which was his second in a row um so that's that's one of the problems though so why are you fighting for him if that's what his raider says he deserved and they had a counseling packet saying that why are you trying to improve their rating that's what being liked can do he needed to be liked by that junior guy yes there's a difference and, yeah absolutely and you know the way i see it ed um because i really did like this i like that particular chapter um you know when he's talking about basically because what i liked about it is it's okay to be likable but at the same time you have to be the honest broker of the organization mm, right? especially as a leader people should know that they can come to you in confidence that you won't put their business out there. Like that's, that's like one of those things I'm very, like if somebody comes to my office and they say, can I talk to you a moment? And, and you can always tell when they're, you know, when they're, they're having an issue or some sort and they need to really get it off their chest. And if they want to close that door, I said, go ahead, close the door. And I always let them know. I said, obviously if it's something that's illegal or immoral or unethical, then I have to report it then we have an issue. But if it's something you just need to talk to me about, understand I'm just like a priest to you. I will not put your business out there. And that often is, you, you, it's, it's shocking how often they will just spill their guts to you and ask you literally, what will you do? And it's because they feel like they can trust you. See, that's what the key word is there, Ed. It's trust. Absolutely. Being likable trust is about is- trust. It's all about trust. It has nothing to do. Uh, Then again, I'm not, I don't, and that's it. I don't trust people who are backstabbing. I don't trust people who will uh, make fun of me in a group of people and constantly cut me down. Now, if we're, you know, like we like to razz each other back and forth here and there. Yeah, I got that. I can do that. But if you, if, if it's somebody who literally constantly is, you know, just picking and picking and picking at me. Yeah. I'm done with that person. But that, and that's what I, I liked about this chapter is he really, I think he really jumps on that idea that I felt like it was about trust and building that trust, man. Yeah, and, and I think it is too. I agree with you, Brian, especially for the be likable piece. That's about trust. That that be like stuff, I mean, uh, again, and I can't emphasize it enough, like tough decisions aren't making you a friend. And you know, when you start hanging out and I, I really, uh, I mean, I've, ex- I've said before on here that I had this problem before where I hung out with subordinates of mine that, that this is part of the problem with that though, because you know, then when it's time, so let's say, um, here's something I did. This is me. I, so I have two soldiers. I get a little too buddy, buddy with the soldiers. Right. And then they're like, Hey, we need somebody to go on this convoy into Iraq. Yeah. Well, I put myself on it because I didn't want to put the soldier on there because I was I was worried how I would feel if the soldier got hurt and da, da, da. Well, guess what? That's their job, just like it's my job, you know. Um, and even at the time, the the, the op sergeant was like, "You're going? Yeah, I'm gonna go," because I didn't want to put. I was I was too close to the soldier, and I didn't want to put the soldier in harm's way and have to deal with the, the fallout from it, you know. So th- that's part of the, those tough decisions. They're not easy to make. The other thing, and I, and I had told my wife this the other day when we were talking about this book, as, as a friend, I'm not controlling your pay raises. I'm not controlling your promotions. I'm not controlling your evaluations, right? But as a manager, 
or a leader, I am. So where do, how do I separate those feelings? Like, oh, you know, Brian, uh, Brian has two kids and a wife and I really need to get him promoted ahead of this guy. But did he deserve a promotion or am I doing it because I'm friends with his family and I understand his family dynamic? That That's the type of stuff that uh, this stuff causes, though, uh, when you get confused about what the role truly, truly is uh, and skews those decision making. So a lot of people will say, oh, there's not a big deal uh, in the military. You know what we like to say, as long as they can separate uh, work from off time. Well, it's not them that's the problem. It's the leader that's the problem. It's can you separate? It's you that's going to make those decisions. It's you that's got to tell that soldier he ain't going to the board. You know, when a soldier has a poor performance at the physical fitness test and they fail and you're friendly with them, are you ready to have that decision to talk about you might have to put them out the army? Yeah. Are are you ready to say, hey, I may have to send you home Um, because you're friendly with them, right? Right. When they're late to work. Oh, when they're late to work, are you ready to put that on paper that you're habitually late to work and we're going to have to recommend uh, some kind of punitive punishment now? So those are the issues that this causes, those tough conversations. And that's why I really this chapter to me really spoke to what I've been through because I have been that one that wanted to be liked. I needed it. I needed to be. Everybody should like me. And I was a jerk and they still liked me and I could never figure it out. But. Uh, I think that as you mature, you turn that corner, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing Kevin talks about is, you know, I just talked about managers who have a compulsive need to be liked are notorious for putting off tough conversations. A constructive uh, criticism or having to mediate dispute. Oh, man. So two soldiers get into it. I'm too close with one of them. Am I ready to mediate that? And then my soldier that I'm close with is wrong. Am I ready to take action beyond that? And he even says uh, in a company environment, uh, people will leave the company behind treatment like this, you know, uh, because it does become, a, a, you know, because you start avoiding these conflicts and stuff and it causes a bad culture. And now you've got, you know, good talent leaving your company. That's not talent management. You're, you're sending your bad people away because of your desire to be light uh, and not just likable and that creates a toxic climate man really to tell you the truth yeah it does it absolutely does and i've been on the other side so after years after being the guy that wanted to be liked i've been in the environment where the leader wanted to be liked, and and it, yeah it does it makes you not want to come to work like we talked about on the previous episode it makes you sit in your car and go all right here we go uh as a matter of fact the guy we just talked about he had certain soldiers he just had to be the good guy you know, he wanted to be light uh, uh, when it was bad news, when it was, hey, you guys got to count parts and, uh, you know, we don't have any shelter and we're going to have to work late today. He wasn't telling them that he was going to get me to tell him that. And that's what, you know, I like I like uh, as he goes on in that chapter, he actually he dedicates a little area about tough uh, conversations that that never happen. And he talks about basically if, if you're unsure about whether you're conflict avoidant or not consider these questions and how many questions oh it's quite a few questions. yeah he has like five questions there yeah um, like the very first one how frequently do you give constructive feedback to your team members man how important is that though like if you think back let's think back about like when i was talking about having no rules right having no rules 
means not have it like don't constrain them, but at the same time, good constructive feedback builds those people to do better and do more. And you, you say, okay, well, I see how you did this process and you did X, Y, and Z. What was the thought process here? So what you do is you get involved in their in their in their tactics because that's what managers and leaders do is we, our job is to fine tune things. Yes, really, it's to lead them through and fine tune things. So you know, looking at that and giving that constructive feedback. Now, it also can't be, and that and we talked about it before too. Like it can't be attacking that person's character. It can't be attacking that person individually. But what it has to do is it has to take a fine look basically like conducting an AAR of the processes and giving that feedback. And then on the opposite side, they have to be able to accept it. If they're, if they're very closed minded or they, they, well, this is how I've always done it type people. Well, you may have hired the wrong person. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. So and, uh, yeah. And those, you want to hit up on them other ones? Yeah. I'll, I'll go across a couple. So this is one that I myself have struggled with. Do you often give people a benefit of the doubt for substandard work? It was probably just an off day. Those typos won't happen again, I'm sure. I've I've had this issue. And then what it does is so, especially like, uh, so we'll be collecting slides, you know, for a meeting. And we'll fix them rather than send them back for them to fix. And we'll be like, oh, I'm sure it won't happen again. And then the next week it happens. Well, I'm adding to my workload by just, you know, not wanting to ruffle anybody's feathers. I need to be liked. Um, so that's one that when I was reading this. Or you just want to get it done. Yeah. And I was, I mean. And I was reading this and I was like, wow, that's, uh, that's me. Like, uh, the next one, this one basically means to me, nothing gets better with time. And as a first sergeant, you know, this, how long do you wait before calling two feuding team members into your office for a sit down? Right. So back to that guy, you talked about the one you talked about riding around him and I was not getting along and it was obvious. Right. And our first sergeant at the time, as well as the, the lieutenant, they knew. But guess what? I'm still waiting to be called in to have a discussion about that. It never happened. And it was obvious. It was so obvious. The platoon was divided. You had team, you know, team Ed and you had team that guy. And it was an issue that I felt like seniors leadership probably should have taken care of. Uh, but that was one of those things. And it just got, it festered. It got worse and worse as the deployment went on. You know, it's funny you said uh, that. So that's why I say nothing gets better with that. You said that. And uh, it was a few months back. Uh, I had two different sergeants in my early room. And I saw that they were having a, a heated discussion. And I could tell it was basically how they were disagreeing, disagreeing, but they actually took it outside the office. They didn't do it in front of people. And I was noticing it. And they, I don't think they realize I, how much I pick up on the emotional intelligence and that stuff. Cause I, I'm really, I feel like I'm tuned in on that stuff. And I walked by them and I said, y'all trying to straighten stuff out. And they just kind of looked at me and I said, listen, <laughs> I said, listen, it's good that you're keeping it right here and you're straightening this stuff out. Cause I don't want it in my house. I don't want a dirty house. We got to keep the house clean. And, and I think they understood what I meant by that, but it's the same thing is, is it either you fix it or we're going to fix it together. And they fixed it amongst themselves, which was amazing because I saw no repercussion. I saw no lack in production or anything. So, but it was good that they knew that I understood what was going on there. And it, I think it falls along that calling people in who are feuding. Basically I was giving them the warno of, 
if you don't fix whatever's going on here that I'm seeing, then we're going to do it together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah. That's actually a good, at least they took it outside too. I hate when they feud in front of subordinates, but. Oh yeah, me too. Um, and then he's got a couple other, you know, he talks about your ratings and I really thought about this. Like basically he's wanting to know if, if you had to round a score for a rating up or down, which way would you go? Where would you go? Would you go up or down with that person? Mm. Um, so that's one of the questions. And then how would you feel if you confronted one of your team members and in reaction, she started crying or yelling in anger. Oh. Uh, this one I've had happen, and it's not easy to deal with in the heat of the moment. No. Uh, this is where my passive nature sometimes can pay off a little bit because, you you know, you want to fire back, but you're just like, mm. usually my soldiers know after I work with them for six months or so, they kind of, we're going to take a breath when this type of stuff happens. Right. And then we'll revisit the conversation. But, you know, um, he, really, he's just talking about overall. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Um, it's funny that that particular last one you talk about where they fire off and yell in anger. I haven't had that happen to me in a very long time. But I remember that I remember specifically the last time I, I remember the incident. I rem, like it's almost it's so vivid in my mind. It was actually in Afghanistan. And it was one of my guys that I really adored. And I don't think he listens to this show. I, I, I hope he does, but I don't think he listens to this show. And we had went on this run and he blew, he, he just, he was like, he was quitting on me. Right. And I was, and I, I got in it, I digged in him a little bit and I, I was, you know, why are you quitting? You're not a quitter. You're better than this. And he came at me like he just yelling he's like why are you always on my case why are you pushing me so hard and i looked at him and i said you may want to let's let's change our tone a little bit and i did it in a manner that was like you know like when you say something it's more of not a uh i said it in a way that i wasn't requesting it i was really demanding it but i acted like i was requesting it and uh i said do you know why it's because of how much i know you can do and I know the effort you could put in and I expect way more out of you than I do the rest of your battles. And our relationship from there changed. It completely changed. Now, mm. I think it was for the better, but I also noticed that he worked a little bit harder. He did a little bit more. And when I see him now, he still gives me the bro hug no matter what. You know what I'm saying? So, and cause I ran into him and his, and his spouse and children um, at, back at Fort Campbell, not too long back before I left. So, but it's just, you know, it, that made me kind of think of that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what Kevin Cruz talks about is there's nothing wrong with, re, you know, needing to be light or even wanting to be light. It's the need to be liked by everyone. That's the problem for, for leaders as well. And this one, he talks about people having haters and he's talking about like Martin Luther King, Dr. King, having haters, Gandhi, Jesus, mother Teresa, I'm thinking, so I just came back from meeting with USDA customs inspectors uh, that determine when your vehicle can get on a ship. And and there's vehicles down there being washed. That they've been washed six times and still not getting on that ship. Hey, that's his job, right? And he understands he's not going to be liked by everybody. And and that's very important. But what, this, what, this really talked to me for Kevin Cruz. So he says, can you reframe a need to be liked by everyone with a need to be loved by just a few? Does your spouse love you? Do your kids love you? Do your parents love you? Do you have a few friends to go shopping or watch the game with? That's all you need. 
Um, and that really caught my attention too, because as long as I got that that lady that lives that is downstairs right now, I mean, and my my children, and you know what I mean, like. At work, I'm not going to be always like, sometimes I'm going to give you the bad news. Sometimes I'm going to tell you, hey, I'm sorry, but you got duty on the four-day weekend. You're going to have 24-hour duty. It's that ability, though, to execute those things in a timely manner without being worried about, oh, they're not going to like me. And that's what he's talking about. This whole chapter is really about, like, the effects of it. And he he says some great stuff. You know, and I'm, I believe you talked about high performers. Let your performers speak. Let your performance speak for itself. I don't need to be to do stuff to be light. Let me my performance speak for myself. And they'll be like, man, like you said, you get down there and you work with soldiers or you work with your subordinates or you, you're whatever you're this. You know, they see that you're willing to do the dirty work, too. That earns that respect, which in turn uh, makes you likable to them. You know, I. And I've had soldiers where you drop the hammer on them because they did something crazy, but they still respect you as their leader and they still like working for you. You know, you you know, you talk about Article 15 readings and sometimes people get a bit uh, reassigned. They'll get that rehabilitated reassigned. Mm -hmm. I've had soldiers be like, I'd rather stay with Sergeant Haley. (laughs) Like, yeah, he just gave me an Article 15. He just gave me 30 days of extra duty, but I'd rather stay with Sergeant Haley. honestly i messed up so yeah um and then you know it's just so much about it but um so when you replace your need to be light with the need to lead right that is the bottom line right mm-hmm. i mean i want to be light but light is not going to make me a great leader i'm going to cut corners i'm not going to make you all do that quarterly training that we talked about in the earlier chapter i'm going to get it done but we're going to do it a different way now making some bad decisions and my leadership is suffering right Mm -hmm. um the other thing that kevin talks about that you brian brought up yesterday or yesterday last week's show he talks about tough and tender and he talks about like most managers think they have to be hard nosed results driven autocrats or a kind of people focused servant, but that's not, that's not necessarily true. Those, those yelling and screaming leaders, that's not necessarily true either. Uh, you can get results by being likable uh, as, as a leader. Um, you can be kind, compassionate, supportive while being rigid about your results. I can still get my results. Yes. But I don't have to be an idiot and a jerk running around the office beating on my chest to get it done, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then his takeaway is really good. So I'm actually going to read his takeaway for this chapter. It is good. Management guru Peter Drucker had it right when he said effective leadership is not about making speeches or being liked. Leadership is defined by results, not attributes. Striving to be light may feel good in the short term, but it's a recipe for disaster in the long term. Instead, you should try to be friendly without striving to be friends. You should try to be likable without caring whether you are light. You should care for your colleagues and also maintain the highest standard. And then later on in one of the uh, how you might apply this, it says, remember that your team needs a leader, not another friend. Remind everyone about the standards, your expectations during your next team meeting, then actively look for ways to hold people accountable. And I think that was pretty key to, um, you know, some of this uh, being likable drives loyalty. I have a friend and he sells furniture and this dude's been, he's been working at the same place selling furniture for like 25, 30 years. 
And I'm going to tell you, he is very bubbly and likable. And he has customers, man, when they come in, oh, he's on vacation. Oh, I don't need new furniture for another two weeks. Then I'll come back when he's here. Like they're not even going to think about talking to you. And if I've seen salespeople try to like pressure them in, oh, it's fine. He's not here, but you know, you can work with me. They'll actually call him and tell them, tell him that people are trying to steal your, your sales, you know, Uh, because he is such a likable, he's a likable person like that, but he also isn't giving away the furniture either, which would make him like, he, he, he realizes that like he knows where the line is. So this was a good chapter. I think it was a really good chapter for me as a senior non-commissioned officer and soon to be retiree. I like the idea, you know, be likable, not liked. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I can correlate this a lot with the pay the bill for leadership capital because that's what your, that's what your goal is when you're paying the bill for leadership capital, you're being likable, but you don't, you're not trying to be liked by everyone, you know? And, and so that very much correlates with that. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. It was excellent. I think it goes in with your next chapter as well. I think it does. Um, definitely. So what we're going to do audience, we're going to go one more chapter for this episode and then we're going to break and we'll pick it up for the following episode and, you know, and to continue on because we know, you know, you've been listening for a little while now. Um, and this book, we knew it was going to take a while. So what we're doing is we're splitting in half, but let's jump right into this next episode, this next chapter. Chapter five, lead with love. The key idea of this chapter, you can still love everyone the same, even if you don't like them all the same. That speaks volumes. And the reason I say that is you don't always like everybody you work with. I mean, that's just, I don't, I don't care what anybody says. You don't, you know, but you have to love them the same. You really do. You have to, you know, you have to be able to, uh, show empathy for them and you have to be able to kind of basically you have to be able to treat everyone the same in a sense um, and with this so he, he writes here should a leader love should a leader love her followers you might think the answer is no after all we did just agree in an earlier chapter that we should not be friends with our direct reports So what exactly am I talking about when I say we need to lead with love? It has been said that Eskimos have dozens of words for snow. And it turns out the ancient Greeks had at least six different words for love. Their language captured the distinction between the sexual chemistry between young adults, the deep understanding between long married couples, close friends, emotions between parents, and children, and more. The love I'm referring to, the Greeks called agape, or a selfless love of everyone. The concept of universal love is an anchor of many world religions. Christians speak of the unconditional love of God and Jesus for all mankind. Often quoted is the book of Peter. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And from the book of Matthew, love your neighbor as you love yourself. In Buddhism, metta is a term that means loving kindness towards other people. And it is one of the four key Buddhist uh, virtues. With agape, love you don't love someone for who they are or for what they do or for what they make you feel. You love them unconditionally as a human. 
you have a genuine heartfelt concern and care for their well-being. You love each team member as an individual, an individual who has a life outside of work, not as a soulless cog in your production machine. People have to treat people like people. That's To me, that's what that says. You have to treat them like they are actual people. You can't constantly use them like they're just another piece. Like it says, a cog in the thing. So uh, that cog isn't working so well. I'll replace it with something else. No, you have to be able to take it. You know, uh, and I know you've dealt with this just like I have, where maybe we have somebody that shows up to work one day and they happen to, they, they'll say, oh, my spouse is, uh, has to go out of town for a work event and my children's sick. Can I stay home with my kids today? And we're technically not supposed to like, no, you got to find a sitter and we got to come to work. But I tell you what, a lot of times, this is what I do. And uh, somebody's listening and tries to call me on it. Uh, you you got to catch me first. Uh, I tell them, go home, go take care of your kids. That family is going to be here long after the army is. I want you to take care of them. Let me know what you need from me in this organization to help you. But remember this is this can't always be the same answer. I need you to work on coming up with other solutions if this problem arises again. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. The problem is with stuff like that, though, is when it does become a habitual thing. But as long as it's a, you know, a random occurrence, one time occurrence, I, I don't see I don't see an issue, really. Yeah. And that's what and that's what I like to I like to kind of make sure that they understand it's not going to happen all the time. Right. Uh, why? Why leaders don't tend to love? This is what he talks about. It's better to be feared than loved has been the prevailing leadership wisdom for 500 years, even since an Italian diplomat penned the prince in 1513. Traditional wisdom and many modern managers argues that you can't get close or personal with your team members because doing so undermines respect in the boss-worker relationship, prevents maintaining objectivity, and makes it more difficult to reprimand or fire others. Although I never had any formal management training, advice, and messages I received from elders include leadership is acting. You can try to be kind to your employees. They'll just be ungrateful. Productivity is higher if they think they might be fired. That's that, that's that idea of leading with fear, man. And I, I cannot disagree with leading with fear. It's just, it doesn't work. It really doesn't. Now, there's different forms of approaching leadership, right? To me, there's different forms of getting action uh, from others or or getting productivity out of others. But I feel like fear is, that's only going to go so far. Because let me tell you right now, if 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 I'm being led by fear by someone and I go into a heat of battle or something, I don't know if I'm going to want to do everything they want me to do. You know, right. It just, I just, you know, I mean, we, and the funny thing is, is you tend to, uh, you resent those people and you, and you want to, uh, you want to push back from them. You don't want to go to them if you have an issue or if you, if you have a question or anything like that. So I don't know, fear that to me, is just, I think it's, it's the wrong pathway for somebody to go down. What are you thinking? Yeah. So the other problem I have with fear too is I mean, I know it's popular. The term bullying nowadays is very popular to be used, but I think that's all fear. Leading with fear, that's all it is. is this is really just glorified 
like a, a not glorified, but a way of bullying to me. And yeah, I don't, I don't like to feel because you feel like it makes you afraid to make decisions. It makes you afraid to, you know, to voice your opinion or your ideas for fear of how that leader is going to react. And a lot of time it's their personality as a whole. You just don't want to deal with. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of that leading with fear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and then you think about this, um, he asked, there's actually in the, uh, the document that you sent me, there's a question here that I, I kind of like to relate back to almost to the fear in a sense. Also, can you dislike someone personally, but still help them to succeed? And the way I say how I can relate this back to fear is, you know, the idea of if they fear me, uh, I don't feel like there's there's going to be enough connection to where I can actually help them understand or I can I can they can help me understand them so I can help them succeed. Right. Uh, For instance, let's say someone's wanting some professional advice. Well, you tend to if you fear someone, you tend to not want to approach them. You don't want to ask them the, the hard questions that really need to be answered to be able to succeed. Uh, now, do I feel like even if you dislike someone, you can help them succeed? Absolutely. You can. It's just it's harder, but it can be done. Uh, have you ever been stuck in that type of situation? Ed? You know, Brian, this is something that the military has taught us because you don't you have subordinate soldiers and you may not agree with all of them. Um, you know, one I can think of is soldiers putting his hands on his on his spouse he was beating his wife but i still had to try to help him when it was time for us to put him out of the military so i still had to kind of help him um stuff like that like sometimes they put us in challenging situations like um soldier oh my goodness got a dui and you know you're trying to help him and you're trying to put him into the program to get him some uh substance abuse counseling and the soldier says I don't understand. I've, I've driven on post a lot more drunk than that. It's like, Oh, you know, and it makes you so angry as a person, but as a individual or as a uh, influence or a leader, you still have to help them because that soldier had a problem. Like this soldier, you could tell when he came to work and he had been drinking because he wouldn't shake. You know what I mean? Like it was to that. So you still had to help him regardless of how you personally felt about that soldier he was in my platoon he wasn't my own individual soldier but man i never forget that i've been much more drunk than that and came on post uh, oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah the military has shown us that a lot and i think that's an advantage for us as leaders because maybe in the outside world that guy that, that same issue the dui you know the, the organization might not be as concerned with helping him through it you know what i mean like uh in the military we're forced to but I also think that that is a good opportunity for us to grow as individuals. Exactly. Well, and, you know, leading with love, somebody would be like, well, what's that mean? And how do you go about it? Well, there are multiple ways and you can little small things matter. And especially if, if you're able to remember something small about someone and you can talk to them about it. And we talk about this. We did talk about that in the science of likability, like, uh, with the, the science of likability, we discussed how someone will talk about the good moments with you, and you're able to take those moments and remind mm-hmm. them of it. And then what it does is it releases those chemicals in their body that helps them uh, be more cheerful and happy. Uh, but I'm going to read this real quick because I like what he says here because it makes me think about like normally, I don't know, w- with us in the Army, it, it makes me think of what we tend to do. 
Some people have the misconception that loving your employees is about bearing your soul and letting them cry on your shoulder or do trust falls. It's not. People are looking for signs that you know they exist, that they matter, and that you care. It's the little things each day or each week, things like on Friday, you ask the team members what they have planned for the weekend. We do that all the time, don't we, Ed? We absolutely do. I like the second part of this, too. Monday morning, do you ask them how their weekend was? Bonus points if you ask specifically about the things they told you on Friday. All the time. Like, that's like that's like a go-to for me because it helps generate conversation with them, okay? And it allows them to open up, and then they, de- they can tell I generally care. Now, I actually do care. That's the problem is <laughs> – I'm not, I'm not just saying this to say these things. You have to actually care, right? Um, here's another one. Do you know the names of their spouse and children? This one I have, I have a hard time with. I, and it's because I'm in a job where all of our names are all on our shirts, along with our prefix. So I kind of have, I don't remember names well. How about you, Ed? No, but I had a, a young a sergeant that worked for me when she wasn't young. No, nah, she was young. Her, uh, Richardson and Richardson knew the soldiers, spouses' name, children's names, mothers' names, and birthdays. And off the top of her head, like you could be in a child and be like, When was little Maze born? And she'd be like, Oh, this, this, this. And it was really strange, but oh wow, yeah. But I was like, You know what? That is, she got out. I tried to talk her out of getting out, but. She got out of the military, and I was like, that is really good as a leader. You you know all those things. Like, uh, you know, so when we deploy, she's like, oh, have you talked to Patrice? It, instead of saying, hey, your mom, have you talked to your mom? No. Have you talked to Patrice since you got here? You need to call Patrice and let her know you're here okay. Like, just stuff like that. That man, creates leadership capital man. right yeah. there. And then it shows she genuinely cared. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Yeah. All right, so here's another one. Do you know if they have any special hobbies or activities they enjoy? That just falls in that science of likability, what we talked about. Uh, What type of movies do they enjoy? What kind of books do they enjoy? That one, we've used that one on each other often, Ed. Goodness. Um, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Do you acknowledge their birthdays, their work anniversaries? That that's one of those things um, I like to bring up too. It's like, well, how many years you've been in? And when's your, you know, when, when, when's your, your, uh, your basic pay entry date or your, your, you know, your BASD and they'll tell you, I'm like, Oh man, you're coming up on that one year. That's awesome. You know, but knowing those things, it really helps out. I know some people like you talked about it before. Some people don't like it. Uh, when, you know, when we used to do the, the, we bring, they bring everybody up for their birthday and we sing happy birthday to them. But I'm going to tell you right now, if I know somebody in my formation, and especially here, I've done it. Matter of fact, I just did it last week. Uh, but if I know somebody in the formation, it's their birthday. We're singing happy birthday right then. Like we're stopping what we're doing and we're going to sing happy birthday. Reason I say this is we actually did a promotion, did some promotions on Monday. We had a, a young sergeant became a staff sergeant and a, and a specialist become a sergeant. Well, the one who became a staff sergeant, her husband was there with her and it just happened to be his birthday. We stopped and sang happy birthday to her husband. And, you know, it may have, it may have, you know, shown that I cared about them and stuff. It may not have, but he did, he did shake my hand later and pat me on the back and said, thank you for that. You know, 
if he liked it, I don't know. I just, I felt like it was the right thing to do at the right time, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, and it builds a connection. Exactly. All right, so here's some ways to express love. We've talked about it before. We talked about Gary Chapman, an author. Uh, he, he has the, the five love languages. He believes that love can be expressed as basically five areas. Um, and I've mentioned it before on here, too, about it's, it's the five ways of appreciation at work, uh, also by Gary Chapman. I'll add that into the, uh, the footnotes so you can see it. But words of affirmation. So words of affirmation, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's how you engage them. Thank you. Glad to see you. Hey, um, you know, how are you doing? Well, that's good to hear. You know, you're constantly like reassuring them uh, verbally. Quality time. So quality time could be something as simple where I'm I'm pulling time aside for that individual. Hey, let me schedule some time for just you because I want to just talk to you about this. Or another – see, another people people don't get this all the time. But sometimes quality time could also be, like, hey, listen, I need you to just go ahead and take some time off because I really think you could use that – some personal time. Don't worry about it. Blah, blah, blah. Just take that time away. Right. Gifts. Now we have to be in the military. We have to be a little bit careful about gifts. Um, so it's kind of, it's like, for instance, uh, what I did is I lead what's called first sergeant PT, uh, in the mornings. And that's anybody who just happened to not make, uh, they didn't pass APFT. So what they do is they're working out with me for a while. I'm showing some different things and just showing them how they can actually get in and enjoy it a little bit more. But, uh, I bring a cooler. Well, last week I put Gatorades in the bottom of the cooler underneath all the water and they didn't know it. And when they went to get water, I said, Hey, why don't you grab all the way to the bottom? You might find a Gatorade. And I don't know if they believe me at first or not, but then they reached down, they got, and they got, Oh, thanks. That was a small gift in a sense, but it also was a way for them to, you know, rehydrate and stuff. And I know I told them, Hey, make sure you drink water with that also, you know, replenish all fluids and whatnot, but gifts, it's a little harder for us. Uh, to do because we're not supposed to be giving gifts back and forth type thing. But I consider that kind of like a gift um, in a sense. Other one, uh, Another one is favors, basically doing a favor for someone. So for instance, um, let's say Ed and I, we're conducting, you know, we're doing all these, this shows and we're putting them together and Ed does some research on something that I've brought up. I, I don't have to do that research now. To me, that's a favor that he's done and it's like, oh, great. This is awesome. Like, for instance, for this uh, Great Leaders Have No Rules, he actually found this leader's workbook thing and sent it to me. And I'm like, man, this is great. This has good questions on it. We can talk about these. And to me, that was a favor. So that was kind of a sh- way for him to show appreciation to me. Uh, to me. Um, and I'm appreciative of him by doing that. And then the last one he talks about is physical touch. Now, that's one we really have to be careful with because – that's more so that you, that one you have to be careful of in this, the work environment because some people could take physical touch the wrong way, completely the wrong way. All right. And some people could be actually giving physical touch and they're doing it the wrong way. So I would warn you of physical touch. Now, the occasional fist bump, high five, to me, those are okay. But if it's not a fist bump or a high five, I warn you to stay away from it, all right? Don't touch people's shoulders. Don't touch their arm, you know, the side of their arms. Don't, you know, just if it's not, if it doesn't deal with your hand connecting with their hand and that is it, 
don't do it because you could actually do something you probably will regret and, and somebody will make a complaint about it, okay? But I would definitely say that if you if you look at the five love language love languages, it's really good. And I'm going to put the, uh, the uh, five acts of affirmation or five acts of in the workplace. It, it's a really good book. Uh, very short read, very short read. You could read it real quickly and, and, and gain a lot of information from it. But basically that's what he's saying. Those are kind of different ways to express love uh, to others. Um, but with this, I want to read the takeaway, but then I also have some questions I want to throw out there. Um, too often, we withhold our feelings at work due to our insecurities or because we were taught that managers need to stay aloof to remain objective. Great leaders know that caring for their people is a secret to activating employee engagement. You don't have to even like them, but you can still love them. People perform better and stay longer when they know you care. I can't agree with that anymore when you show that you care they it's almost like they have pride in everything they have that ownership we talked about and it it really does it resonates with your with individuals you work with i guarantee if you try it you you know just go through and you look at some of the things he said and also some of what he offers up um and, and right down here he talks about uh, like he talks about how might you apply this if you're a basically this different uh, manager, prof- sales professional, sports coach. Well, he talks about arm, a military officer. What opportunities do you have to lead from the front? Perhaps you can cover a junior's duty or work beside her. Perhaps you could reinforce good safety practices. Do you take a genuine interest in your troops or sailors, airmen, or marines? Inquire about family members. Ask whether they have what they need. How do you treat even the most junior personnel? That's key. How do you treat the most junior personnel? Mm. Now, think about someone you dislike at work and consider this. What things from their upbringing or their past may have led them to behave the way they do? We aren't all taught the same. We aren't all raised the same. So think about that, right? Now think, think of someone you don't get along with at work or in your personal life, and consider, do you have opposite personality traits? Maybe, you you know, the opposites attract type thing, or the opposites detract, whatever. And that's kind of like having that empathy and understanding of them. Instead of having apathy, have empathy. And then think of someone you may have clashed with in the past, and let them know that despite your past differences, you want them to succeed, and you are willing to help in any way. I can tell you, I remember specifically a person that happened with before. Now that person's no longer in the army where he and I clashed and he got mad at me about something. And I kind of felt like he had a right to a little bit be, uh, be mad to a certain extent, but then the other extent I didn't. And we clashed. And then later on I told him, I said, Hey man, I don't, I, I don't agree with you, but I respect you and let's go about doing X, Y, and Z differently. And he was cool with it. You know, and I think I think it kind of helped because our relationship actually grew from then, and we 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 became a little bit closer. He went through some tough times, uh, and I feel like, and I could be wrong. I feel like he, uh, I was somebody he was able to uh, rely upon uh, and talk to about those times because I mean it was really rough. Like he he really went through some stuff, and I felt bad, and but I had that empathy instead of apathy, 
and I even though I disliked you know what happened before, that doesn't mean I couldn't move past that and still love him as a person. Uh, and it, you know, and, and that's the other thing too. People tend to uh, they misconstrue that word love, as he said earlier. Loving someone for just being someone, it's probably like ever since I've uh, I've kind of like embraced that. It's probably one of the most empowering things for me, for me as a leader, to love someone. It's you look at people differently. You really do. It's not you don't see them as an object anymore. You literally see them as an essential part to your organization. And you treat them as the essential part to your organization, no matter what it is they're doing. All right. So with that, Ed, you got anything else uh, before we uh, we end this show at the halfway point? Yeah, you ain't lying. Um, <clears throat> I really think that maybe we should have known by how excited we were to do this book that this book would not get done uh, <laughs> quickly. But uh, I think it's better to turn out a better product than to turn out a quick product. Yeah. And we didn't really have a rule on the time. We had guidelines. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So we operate within those guidelines ish. Ish, yes, <laughs> we sure did. And the thing is, is we're only halfway through the book and we still got we still got some really good stuff to talk about with these other chapters. Yes. Yeah. There's one of my other favorite chapters is coming right up. Oh yeah, definitely. Actually, you get the yeah, you get the very next chapter when we come back next week. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So this is the deal. The only task I'm gonna throw out there this week, and I'm gonna write it down. The only task, and I'm gonna make sure it's on Facebook when you, you know, 101 influence, you type that in your search bar, you join our group, but you have to say click visit group there, the little blue button that says visit group after you've gone to uh, the Instinctive Influencers podcast page. The only thing I'm gonna task out there is get this book. I, I'll put it, Ooh. I'll put it in the show notes. All right, I'll put a link directly to. I'll put a link to the Kindle version, the hard copy version, the Audible version, whatever it is. I'm telling you. This book is worth your time, all right? Scroll down, look at those show notes, click on that link, and you will see this, this book is worth your time, every minute of it. Uh, we, the crazy thing is, is, Ed, we went two hours into this. Yeah, I know. And we barely touched some of the, the information in this book. That's what's crazy about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to touch enough to make them curious. Hey. I, I can't I can't stress enough stress enough how well this book was putting together. Um, but with that, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to let the audience go now because it's they're probably thinking, wow, they they're continue going. I can't believe this. <laughs> uh, but we're gonna pick it up right where we left off. Ed's gonna jump right into chapter six next week. Uh, so stay tuned. Make sure you, you know get back on there next Tuesday uh, and get the new episode, and you'll see. Then we're going to jump right into chapter six and we're going to work our way back all the way through to chapter 10. It's going to be great stuff, uh, I, I tell you. But without further ado, I am Brian. And I am Ed. And this has been the Instinctive Influencers Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Have a nice day. <laughs>